Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. This program is coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City, and we thank you for joining us. Tonight's program is the opening event in the symposium, Corruption, the Rise of Populism, and the Future of Democracy, which will continue on the UI campus through April 2nd. The symposium, which is open to the public, is sponsored by international programs with major funding from the Stanley UI Foundation Support Organization. On tonight's World Canvas, an exceptional group of guests will help us understand how corruption and populism can work in tandem to play on the popular consciousness of a dissatisfied public and usher in authoritarian-leaning leaders whose commitment is not to democracy but to their own rule. I'd like to introduce our guests for this first part of the program. Just next to me is Marina Zaloznaya, Associate Professor in the Departments of Sociology and Political Science here at the University of Iowa. And Marina and her faculty colleague, you'll be meeting later, Bill Reisinger, are the people responsible for organizing this important symposium. Thank you for being here. Next to her is Monica Prasad, a professor in the Department of Sociology at Northwestern University. Thank you, Monica. And at the far end, we have Marco Garrido, associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Chicago. Thanks for making the trip. Marina, how do we define corruption as it relates to politics? First of all, thank you, Joanne. So nice to be here, and thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, the way that we think about corruption has really changed over time. Originally, the meaning of corruption was more broad and um, abstract, I would say, um, than it is nowadays. Um, specifically, the notion of corruption referred to the disintegration, the rotting, the spoiling of the body politic, right? So when society comes apart at its seams, when the um, bonds that hold people together in a coherent body politic, in an effective body politic, are... Um, undermined, um, it is a sign of corruption. However, in more sort of modern times, post-industrialization, the word has come to mean a very specific set of characteristics that relate to the way that modern societies are organized, right? Um, corruption now, in the most common and the most prevalent, most popular definition, refers to the abuse of private office or private power, I mean, sorry, public office or public power for private gain, right? So the idea here is that corruption refers to the violation of a specific set of rules that underlie modern bureaucracies, right? So the ideas and principles like disinterestedness, um, uh, role competence, um, transparency, accountability of those who are uh, performing office duties um, are violated um, somehow um, in this sort of ideal, typical way that bureaucracy is defined. Corruption means the disintegration of the specific type of social organization. And uh, what is interesting is that this is a fundamentally political um, definition and that sort of the way that we ordinary people think about corruption is fundamentally political because the concept of public and private in general um, is something that's not necessarily commonplace, mm -hmm. right? It's something that's very specific to um, developed Western, uh, capitalist democracies, right? So it's something that um, 
we expect to be um, happening and to be normal, to be, to, to be default type of social organization um, in the West. However, in many places around the world, societies are organized uh, according to um, these types of logics, but also other types of logics, like kinship relationships and emotive bonds and um, other types of uh, social connections. So when we take the notion of corruption and move it from sort of the Western context in which it has acquired its modern meaning and impose it on places where there is no clear public-private divide, then we face a problem. And that's where politics really comes in because it allows the imposition of the term corruption allows some social actors to benefit while others are told to comply with this very specific and very Western notion of how to live their lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, would you say that corruption is basically a universal feature of societies, but it varies in degree from place to place? Well, again, that depends on how we define it. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's... Um, Something, you know, if we take this Western definition, then sure, we can find it everywhere. However, if we listen to people on the ground mm -hmm. and listen to them about how they interpret um, their own experiences, they might not see it necessarily as mm -hmm. corruption, right? Or they might see it as something that deviates from this ideal of mm -hmm. a Western bureaucracy. However, they might not attribute the same kind of moralistic connotations um, to this concept. Mm -hmm. So how successful are the efforts that some uh, Western countries um, uh, use to assess the sort of political development of other countries? How successful is, are these rankings and um, um, uh, yes, you're doing better or oh, you have a lot of work to do still. How successful is that in either changing anybody's behavior or creating friends? So you're asking a sociologist. <laughs> so <laughs> my answer is going to be not very successful. Uh, I think what you're referring to, specifically in regards to corruption, is that corruption has emerged as this sort of universal measure mm -hmm. of how well countries are doing relative to Western standards of doing well, right? So um, for instance, in the 1990s, an entire global apparatus has emerged um, a regime, some people refer to it, right? So it's a set of rules and institutions, governmental, non-governmental, intergovernmental, um, that basically exist to measure what they see as corruption all over the world and then make decisions about governance, right? About allocation of aid, resources, about um, sort of foreign policy in case of governments based on how different countries perform on this measure. Um, and a lot of critical social scientists see this as very problematic, again, because of how the measures themselves are constructed. A lot of the times they're based on the opinions of uh, Western experts. Um, but also um, a lot of people are skepti skeptical about how they're used, right? So. Uh, you know, inevitably in this kind of rankings, um, countries like United States and Western Europe come out ahead mm -hmm. and inevitably we see that countries that United States is not friendly with 
end up at the bottom of these rankings, uh, which makes you wonder, right? So what are we really measuring when we say that we're measuring corruption around mm -hmm. the world? And when we uh, make these kinds of assessments or judgments of other, of other nations, um, does corruption only really feel like it's a serious thing when there are tremendous amounts of money involved or when there are um, what would appear to those making the judgments when there are um, special favors given to close, um, uh, close people related to the, to the leaders of that country? I mean, is, is it all about money? Is it about relationships? It's a very interesting question, and um, I would say that um, although when we think about political implications of corruption, we tend to, our mind goes immediately to sort of large-scale uh, monetary exchanges or capture of power um, that, that seem to have the most um, obvious, you know, political implications. Uh, Corruption in public sector or sort of the everyday exchanges that many people around the world engage in routinely to obtain public services um, is actually extremely consequential and perhaps, you know, I don't want to compare, I do not know, but it may be as, if not more consequential than large-scale transfer of resources in corrupt dealings. Um, why? Because for a lot of people, um, encounters with petty bribery, nepotism, string pooling in the public sector really represent the only time that they come in contact with their states, right? Mm -hmm. So they form their opinions about their governments, form their opinions about their leaders based on these experiences, right? So corruption is the way that people interact with the state, right? So politically speaking, um, even if the amounts of resources that are um, the change hands in this um, kind of everyday routine exchanges are relatively minor, um, I think, for instance, for the sake of the symposium that we're mm -hmm. going to have at the University of Iowa <laughs> tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, or you know, a symposium investigating the connections between corruption, populism, and the future of a democracy, these type of transactions, very small transactions that are part of everyday lives um, for millions, billions of people actually, 1.6 billion people worldwide report having given a bribe within a year, previous mm. year, right? Mm. So it's a, it, it, it's a part of, of life, you know, it's not a part of our lives uh, mm. perhaps, but um, in the West we tend to underplay corruption as this something that's, that doesn't happen often, that's something that is, n you know, exceptional, something that's sensational, mm -hmm. and it really is not. It's a way that a lot of people live. Um, so when we apply this term corruption, we should think about mm -hmm. what kind of moral categories we're imposing on ordinary people mm -hmm. um, who are basically trying to live their lives. Sure, sure. Thank you. Well, um, terrific. I, I'd like to move now to Monica. Uh, would you say, are there some generalizations we can make about corruption that are in some way universal? Uh, yeah, so um, I wanted to pick up on um, what Marina was just suggesting about um, there's often this uh, skepticism about the category of, of corruption, and there's a sort of um, hesitation about um, saying corruption is bad um, mm -hmm. for understandable reasons. Um, you know, when we say the word corruption, it makes us think about individual deviance, and often that's not really what's going on in many of these countries um, around the world. Um, uh, corruption is something that everyone participates in. So it's really an alternative political order. 
It's not just sort of deviance from an order. Um, that said, um, it's, uh, I don't think one can say that, oh, all alternative political orders are equivalent. Um, I don't think it's a case of just um, being completely relativist um, because we do have some evidence that this alternative political order um, produces outcomes that are not as good as um, the sort of standard meritocratic bureaucracies. Um, we know, for example, that um, it's worse for the economy. Um, back in the 50s and the 60s, there used to be this debate uh, saying, well, is corruption really just a way of creasing the wheels? Is it a way of getting a better economic outcome in a sort of shortcut, uh, easier way? And now the economic, uh, the economics um, economists are showing that uh, really it's not for reasons that you can understand. You know, if um, if you're not going to want to open a business if you just don't have all the connections to be able to um, you know to, to bribe your way through there, um, you're going to be hesitant about um, all different kinds of, of of things. You're just not going to have as robust an economy. Um, we also know Marina and I actually wrote a paper showing that. Um, um, arguing that uh, corruption has worse effects for um, infant mortality and life expectancy. Um, there are people who have argued that uh, corruption produces worse um, effects for inequality. So um, for all these reasons, um, I want to hold both things in our heads at the same time, that um, this is, uh, it is a Western notion um, to say, you know, to, to say that corruption is bad, um, that there is this sort of alternative political order that is accomplishing things, that is doing things. That's how, how things are done in other countries. Nevertheless, we can't say that it's, um, it's equivalent to uh, how one would like to, to, to do it. And just to, to underline that, I will point out that um, even in countries where corruption is completely widespread, people are outraged about corruption. Um, if you see opinion polls, it's usually in the top three uh, of things that people are completely outraged about, you know, just, just after unemployment or whatever. So even in countries where there is lots of corruption, people hate corruption. Um, there is this wonderful work by some anthropologists uh, who make the argument that even in African countries where people have never experienced a modern non-corrupt state, they have expectations of a non-corrupt state. They want their bureaucrats to not be corrupt. <laughs> so there is something, there's some sort of, um, of core there that I think we can say, um, you know, despite all of these, all of these uh, variations, these differences, these nuances that are completely, um, completely germane, there is something about it that I think we can say is, uh, is not ideal. Mm -hmm. So how successful have efforts to combat corruption been? So I'm with Marina on this one, mm -hmm. not very successful. Um, for about 20 years, uh, international organizations have been, um, uh, there, there's a global anti-corruption agenda. Um, and I will talk about this more tomorrow um, in, in my talk. Um, there have been various approaches to tackling corruption. What the, the approach that underpins most um, most uh, uh, serious uh, reform efforts, you know, USA, Transparency International, et cetera, the, um, the idea is to think of corruption as a case of bad apples. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that if we punish corrupt people and if we reward uncorrupt people, we'll get rid of corruption. The problem with that is that, um, you know, you bring in your international um, 
folks from USAID or whatever, you set, in, you set your program in place and you punish uh, people and reward people, um, then you go away. And the whole question depends on whether the people who are doing the punishing and rewarding are themselves corrupt. Mm. Um, and of course, where corruption is a system, they themselves will be corrupt. So that is the, that's the basic um, Achilles heel of the um, international governance agenda. Um, there are uh, different approaches, which perhaps we can um, discuss tomorrow. Um, but yeah, no one has quite figured out how do you, uh, how do you reform this system? Well, in an exchange we had before the program, um, you suggested that there are some common strategies for fighting corruption. Could you tell us what some of those are? Yeah, I will. So um, one of them is, um, so um, there is a, a large debate in the scholarship um, that suggests, well, if we really want to resolve corruption, we should examine how um, the countries of the West did it. Um, because certainly there was corruption um, in many countries. Um, in the 19th century, in the 20th century, I'm from Chicago, so of course clearly uh, corruption is a thing, was a thing. Um, nevertheless, uh, although we still have uh, instances of corruption, we don't have the, the, the levels of corruption yeah. that we did before. So how did that happen? Um, and so there is this, uh, this um, terrific scholarship in the literature that sort of travels under the phrase getting to Denmark. How do we get um, developing countries to a situation like Denmark's, right? And one of the arguments that they make is that you see something happening at moments of great crisis. So the entire system switches um, during and because of a war or a great economic crisis. So that is one, um, one, one insight um, on which people have, um, have, have tried to build. Um, another insight that people um, have tried to build on, including um, work of marinas, um, is that um, you can't actually say that a country is corrupt. There's a great deal of variation in any country. Um, so in any country, there are some organizations, um, uh, even in very even countries known for corruption, there are some organizations that are known to not be corrupt. Um, probably in every country. In many uh, very corrupt countries of Africa, there are certain organizations that just have a reputation as, um, as being not corrupt and um, that generally can be shown to not be corrupt. Um, so for example, uh, corruption is very widespread in India, but if you, um, if you, if, if you uh, take a class at the in Indian Institutes of Technology, you do not bribe a professor at the IIT. It just does not happen. It would be like trying to bribe a professor at the University of Iowa. It's, mm -hmm. it's unthinkable. Mm -hmm. So that is also an interesting um, subject for, for research and for thinking. How does that happen? Yeah. You know, how in this environment does this happen? How can you build on it? So those are, those are some of the approaches. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. I, I want to bring Marco into the conversation now, too. Um, how are corruption and democracy linked? Oh, that's an interesting question. You know, I study the Philippines, and um, when I talk to people, they often remember that under the, the Marcos dictatorship, um, corruption was, was off the charts, but at the same time, it was very much concentrated around the figure of the dictator himself and his cronies, and so they, they talk about it as being um, flagrant, but at the same time, very much concentrated. They knew where it was coming from. 
Um, and they note that under the experience of democracy, so the Philippines democratized after the ouster of Marcos in the 1980s, 1986, um, they noticed that corruption started to become more decentralized, that it's, it stopped becoming so consolidated or concentrated around this one figure and his coterie and his, and his cronies, but all of a sudden at every single level, people were taking a kind of cut. And so what was interesting was that the cuts were smaller, but they added up, and in some, in some ways they started to feel that, um, that the situation hadn't necessarily improved. Part of the reaction against Marcos was against his corruption. And they saw democracy as the solution. And now they had democracy. Corruption didn't go away, but its form changed. Its structure changed. It became more diffuse. It became more a part of everyday life. You needed a driver's license. You had to bribe somebody. You had to, you know, and so there's a kind of democratization of corruption, ironically <laughs> enough. And, and that very much affected their sense of what democracy meant. It's important to remember that in the 1980s, not just in the Philippines, but across Latin America, democratization was met with high, high hopes, with incredible euphoria. It literally brought people to the streets dancing. It was a giant fiesta in the context of the Philippines. Uh, they thought democracy meant renovation, political renewal, and an end to corruption. That certainly didn't happen. And now, with a, in retrospect, 30, almost 40 years from that point, I think there's a connection between this, this uh, nostalgia for authoritarian, autocratic mm -hmm. leaders, um, and this experience of democracy as, as corrupt, yeah. you know, as, as disorderly. I mean, in the Philippines, an election is coming up in May, and the, 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 the guy who's at the head of the polls by an enormous amount, and he leads by 45 percentage points, is the son of the dictator. It's, his name is also Ferdinand Marcos, but it's Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Hmm. And, and to go from Marcos to Marcos in the span of 30, 36 years of democracy um, suggests something really important. It suggests to me a kind of evaporation of this faith in liberal democracy that in the 1980s was so palpable, was so powerful. And here we are, you know, 36 years later, and there's a sense in which that faith has run its course. I mean, I hate to say it, but if in fact he, he gets elected and it looks like he will be, and his vice president, by the way, looks like it will be the daughter of the current president, Rodrigo Duterte, so this is Sarah Duterte. So you're gonna have a Marcos-Duterte combination in power after 36 years of democracy, and they're brought into power by election. Wow. It's a stunning, yeah. it suggests that we've, that something has changed. You know, the old project, the project of consolidating democracy, becoming, say, like the United States, those ideals have, are, I don't know if they've completely gone, but they're certainly weaker than they used to be. Mm. So there's very much a connection. It's very, very palpable in the ground. People make this connection themselves. Yeah. They don't need scholars to tell them about it. Mm. Um, there is a lot of rhetorical power in a politician's claim that he or she will uh, attack corruption and uh, clean up the government, drain the swamp. Um, We've learned already, just from this little bit of conversation, that even the politicians who make this claim, and even some who may sincerely try to do it, uh, very often there's not much success in cleaning up corruption. And I think we have some experience in uh, a system we're familiar with here in the United States, where um, uh, sometimes the people who are elected uh, appear to have the same corruption issues that the people they say they want to replace are said to have. So. What about the rhetoric around corruption? 
is it, is it, will, it continue to, will it continue to be attractive mm. to a voting public, mm. even though the, uh, the demonstrable decrease in corruption is not there? You know, I think, I think what's important to understand, uh, just as Monica said, is that a lot of people in the developing world find corruption objectionable. In fact, it's become an enormously powerful political symbol. And so that's empowered anti-corruption movements. So anti-corruption movements aren't necessarily the opposite of corruption. They go along with it. They become mobilized in ways to, in some ways, do corrupt things or, or, to, or to advance political agendas. We see all around the world um, anti-corruption movements bringing, say, illiberal leaders, strongmen, into power. I mean, we see it in Brazil, we see it in the Philippines, we see it elsewhere. People are upset with corruption. That's easy to mobilize because it gets people angry, it gets people upset. But then the mobilization against corruption becomes a mobilization against liberal democracy, becomes mm -hmm. a mobilization against certain institutional freedoms, against civil liberties. Mm -hmm. right? And so it's important to understand that because corruption is such a powerful symbol, precisely because it's so pervasive, and it's become, in some ways, for people, the problem with of development, the problem they see around them, the problem is corruption, they say, so leaders promise we'll, we'll, we'll end corruption, or social movements arise saying we'll fight corruption. That becomes a ticket to political power. So it's important to understand how these things work, that, that the invocations of corruption, the rhetoric of corruption, is incredibly powerful, and it can be used to mobilize and, and if you if you get stuck in thinking, well, you know, corruption's bad, so let's 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 the people who are fighting against corruption must be good. You miss the context. You miss the fact that it can be used. It can be mobilized for very particular agendas, political agendas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, if this first segment has taught us anything, it's that these next two days of conversations in the symposium will be incredibly interesting. And I want to say thank you to the three of you for joining us for this first part of our conversation. Thank you to Marina Zalaznaya, to Monica Prasad, and to Marco Garrido. And uh, thank you for listening and for joining us for this first part of the program. Don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. This is World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. Please thank our guests. Hello, and thank you for joining us for World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. In this part of our program, our guests will focus on the rise of populism. I'm pleased to introduce Marco Klausnia, just next to me, Assistant Professor in the School of Foreign Service and the Department of Government at Georgetown University. Thanks for being here. And next to him is Kurt Wayland, a professor in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. So thank you both. And Marco, let me begin with you. We've talked a lot about corruption, but what do we mean by the word populism? Um, okay, so I'm a little hesitant to <laughs> make a definition because I'm sitting next to a person who wrote a definite account of what populism <laughs> is. Um, <laughs> But I'll give it a, a shot and then <laughs> and embarrass and um, shoot you, me down. You can just cite me. <laughs> I, I just did. <laughs> um, so at least the, the way I look at it, um, populism is defined by the sort of political appeal of essentially easy solutions um, that stem from this rhetoric of sort of us as outsiders against them as the insiders. And the insiders here are the uh, sort of, you know, the political... Uh, mainstream um, and the outsiders are those who would sort of come and so the insiders are seen as corrupt and networked 
and in on the benefits uh, that escape others, um, and the others are the ones who are going to take um, take the kind of reins away. Mm -hmm, so thank you both for that uh, <laughs> for that description. Um, how do corruption and populism threaten good governance and democracy? Right. Well, the there's a you know as as the other Marco um, uh, has has very eloquently put it. There's a very direct link, um, I think, between populism and corruption, uh, because part of the appeal is that um, the insiders, uh, the sort of you know political mainstream, is corrupt and. Unfortunately, in the practice of many um, politicians in many countries around the world, that is true. Um, and so populist appeals are very appealing because there is this promise of, of, of helping get rid of corruption. Um, and so there's kind of this very synchronized push and pull between populist appeals um, and experience of, um, experience of corruption. Um, and so um, the, the trouble, of course, is that these uh, promises are very often um, you know, they're not easy to, uh, to achieve, right? Because these, you know, there are, as, as we heard in the previous panel, there are no easy solutions to, uh, to corruption, partly because it's a sort of systemic uh, way of ordering things in, in many polities. Um, and so, um, the, you know, the, in many cases when populists come to power, as, um, as Monica and Marina were, were mentioning and Marco as well, um, you have the, those who claim to be clean and have, uh, have solutions um, turn out just to be just as um, just as corrupt, uh, if not more. Um, as you know, Marco was alluding to, um, populist leaders who appear to be anti-corruption then uh, turn into um, sort of leaders who trample on uh, civil liberties and you know liberal democratic norms, um, and sort of can lead us mm -hmm. to, uh, to a path of, of democratic backsliding. Mm -hmm. um, what are the conditions? that create an opening for autocratic-leaning populist leaders to challenge democratic systems? Well, as, it's, as it pertains to corruption, um, as we heard, the frustration, the popular frustration with corruption, I think sort of creates um, conditions where people are ready to endorse um, anti-corruption policies that are sort of questionable in nature. Um, so, you know, I think many people, um, and, and you know, my research and others' research has shown that many people would be just fine with having corrupt politicians locked away and throw away the key. Right? So, you know, no pretrial bail, um, you know, wiretapping everywhere, um, and sort of these questionable methods, uh, and people are just fine with that. Uh, many people are because they're so frustrated with corruption, um, and so that creates popular pressure on anti-corruption institutions, even if they're completely independent and uh, enlightened, to sort of go after politicians in such a way, right, to, uh, to start engaging um, in illiberal practices. Um, and so that is a slippery slope, right? Um, and then another condition, which, which is something that we have been hearing a lot about, is sort of partisan polarization, which we um, unfortunately are all too uh, familiar with in the United States, and it exists in many other places. And what it does is sort of pits us against them in terms of kind of in-group and out-group behavior. And so translated to anti-corruption preferences, what we see is that a lot of people would say, okay, lock the uh, politicians and, and you know, throw away the key, but lock their politicians mm -hmm. away, not our politicians. Mm -hmm. um, and so those two things combined, so these kinds of illiberal practices or condoning of illiberal practices, as well as this, these partisan divisions kind of combined can create a very, very sort of dangerous and slippery ground mm, where yeah. democratic backsliding can start happening. Yeah. Um, 
so I want to bring you into the conversation here as well, Kurt. Um, so we're talking about conditions that can feed the public appetite for leaders who proclaim themselves to be fierce fighters against corruption, and therefore fuel a populist fervor to clean up government. Um, what do these leaders, these potentially anti-democratic leaders, these populist leaders, build their arguments on, and are their arguments based in fact? So, I mean, you see that a lot of the arguments we would consider questionable, you know, as you said, simplistic solutions, attacks on others, um, conspiracy theories, but I think populism also has some real underlying reasons for its rise that are more structural and where you see in some sense that the people who support populists and populist leaders in some sense even have a point and they point to problems in existing democracies. So mm -hmm. think of, for example, um, economic problems that people face. Clearly there has been rising inequality in many countries. They have, the lives of many people have become more precarious over time. And so populist leaders, um, feed on that discontent, on the concerns that people have, on the suffering of people. So there is a real reason why people follow populist leaders. There is something in modern democracy, I think, that's structural, that makes people discontent, but it's very hard to resolve, which is, you see that modern democracies have become very technocratic. So essentially decision-making has moved away from people. People have not very good understanding of what's going on. They can't really get involved very much. Think of, for example, decision-making has in some sense become ever more removed from people. Even in the European Union, it's made in Brussels, not even in their own capital. So many decisions have to be made at a global level, and they're made by experts and by technocrats. And so people don't feel involved. They don't understand what's going on. Pop Politics has become extremely complex, and so populist leaders are appealing because they say, ah, it's not complex, you know. The US immigration system, it's not very complex, build a wall. Mm -hmm. And so it's that kind of the complexity of modern life that has taken, that has and sometimes made it impossible for people to have a good grasp on what's going on. That opens the space for this populist mm -hmm. And then you also see representational deficits, and that is, Modern democracies, for good and bad reason, don't want to pick up some issues that people are concerned about. And you know that's a more controversial point, because for example, in the United States, very clearly, a significant segment of the population didn't want rising immigration. We in the elite say, oh, that's a great thing. It strengthens the country, whatever. But um, a number of people didn't want that. And that, that view, until Trump came about, wasn't really represented. And so we don't like that somebody raises that issue, but it meant that a number of citizens didn't find their views represented. I mean, I'm a German, right? So in Germany, no politician talks about the death penalty. If you wanted to appeal to that and you got away with it, you would, in some sense, pick up an issue that people haven't touched. And so populist leaders, in their transgressiveness, <laughs> are willing to raise these issues. Trump, I can talk about it because I'm big and powerful and rich and nobody can go after me. And so there are, there are reasons that populist leaders or real grievances, issues, problems that populist leaders tap into. <laughs> are there examples of populist leaders who uh, are strong Democrats, small d? I, in my personal view, 
populism inherently has authoritarian temptations. And so, you know, essentially, <laughs> if, if they get away with it, they try to um, establish political hegemony. They are very full of their charismatic prowess. They don't like checks and balances. They see institutions, including liberal checks and balances, as hindrances. And so the more power they have, the more backing they have, the more they try to do things that we wouldn't consider very democratic. And so to be provocative, I think on, only those populists who are not very powerful and not very successful are remain democratic. Those who are powerful, the more power they have, the more backing they have, the more they try to, mm. you know, rise above and cement the hegemony and in that sense turn mm -hmm. authoritarian. Mm -hmm. But they don't always get away with it. I mean, the good thing is, we were just talking out in the hallway that um, I think there's a lot of concern, for example, in the United States after the Trump election that when a populist leader comes to power, democracy really is at serious risk. But what you have to do is, and, and you see, you know, the famous book that um, Levitsky and Sieblatt wrote, How Democracies Die. They look at four populist leaders that dismantle democracy to show how that happened. Fujimori, Orban, um, Chavez, and Erdogan. But if you only look at those cases where it happened, you paint a wrong picture. Because there are many populist leaders who had the same kind of tendencies, but they didn't get away with it. Mm. And so if you look at a broader picture, the more comprehensive set of populist governments, you see it's not that dangerous because there are a lot of forces of resistance, a lot of obstacles, a lot of risks and pitfalls that populist leaders have along the way. Mm -hmm. And so what I've tried to show in my research is you can sleep well in this country because, you know, for example, <laughs> democracy in the U.S. is not really at risk from populist leaders in any very serious or severe way. And, and that would be because we have institutions that we think will help check the power of these leaders? So I did a study. I looked at 30, 30 populist chief executives in Latin America and in Europe, and I, saw, I tried to figure out who became authoritarian and what. And you see among those 30, only six leaders really moved the country into authoritarian rule. 24 did not. What did you need? You needed the coincidence of two things, namely some type of institutional weakness, and then, that wasn't even sufficient, then a specific conjunctural opportunity that enabled you to get really strong mass support. You know, let's say like Fujimori had like, after he did his self-coup, had 80% support. Chavez, 65, 70% with a steamroll of support like that. Nobody can contain you. But that's not that easy to get. And so you get that only under two conditions. Either when you manage to resolve a big crisis, like Fujimori with hyperinflation and the Shining Path terror movement, or if, like Chavez, you benefit from a massive exceptional windfall and you can essentially buy support. Mm -hmm. And so those conditions are not very common and the coincidence is even less common in the United States. You don't have institutional weakness. You're not going to have a huge hyperinflation. You're not going to have a huge windfall. So here, that's what I'm saying. Hmm. You know, Trump tried, 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 but we didn't get very far. Is that the way you see it too, Marco? Well, for the sake of um, discussion, I can say not really, um, although I would agree with, uh, with a lot of, um, of what Kurt said. Um, what I think I 
can add is, I think I think I can uh, sort of point a little bit of an emphasis on charisma. Um, so I'm not sure I would equate, or I, I would say that populists are only those who are charismatic. Um, but it, there is definitely that definitely is a correlation. And where I'm a little less sanguine than than Kurt perhaps is that charismatic politicians tend to have pretty large support, at least for a period of time. And that is not necessarily driven by windfalls or, um, or sort of successfully um, solving crises, but can generate um, popularity and, uh, and support on its own, on, on their own. And so, you know, where we, where we get leaders like that, especially, you know, after or during a period of crises, then I think in popular mind, I think charisma can, can kind of you know, play the sort of comforting and energizing um, role that can be a bit of a steamroller, right? That can go, you know, kind of just in time and just at the right place, uh, poke through, you know, institutional, um, um, you know, weaknesses, um, or or kind of be kind of an added benefit to uh, to you know potential sources of revenue or things like that. Um, so, so I think it's the it's the is the charismatic populace that, uh, that perhaps we have to uh, worry about. Now, what is charisma? I'm not gonna venture into yet another <laughs> uh, definition here, but you know, it has got a little bit of a kind of know it when you see it equality. And you know, mm -hmm. fortunately we do know, know uh, of quite a few charismatic populists um, these days who, who seem mm -hmm. to be doing quite all right. It's interesting because um, in just these last few years with the Brexit vote and then the 2016 election, it seems that lots of people who felt they were really quite disconnected from even voting on any kind of regular basis, not for me, I don't care, they're all the same. It seems that many people were, were uh, aroused to the point where they did get out and vote in those, in those uh, referenda. And um, uh, what, what is it that calls people who have in some ways checked out from a political system? Um, is, is it this charismatic factor? Is it the, um, somebody actually told me uh, something that I agree with, which is that uh, the system's not fair, I'm not getting ahead, my kids will never have a chance to go to college or whatever, and, and there's, you know, there are those points that they hit that can inspire someone who has really never had much interest in uh, being part of the voting public to step forward. So, I mean, one thing that you see is populist leaders are willing to pick up a whole bunch of issues that kind of civilized politicians don't want to touch on. I mentioned immigration. You know, populists often feed on resentment. They yeah. feed on bad feelings. So they're willing to raise that. And, you know, it so happens that, unfortunately, a bunch of people harbor these bad feelings. They couldn't express them, and nobody really represented them. But here comes Trump. And says, you know, we don't like immigrants. And so that draws people who before had essentially resigned themselves to abstention, like, oh, finally somebody mm -hmm. says these things that when I mention them, somebody criticizes me and he can't get away with it. But what you also see is, of course, these populist leaders precisely by their uncouth behavior and by their feeding on these resentments, they of course also provoke counter-mobilization. And so you saw that in the United States, especially in the midterm elections of 2018, the highest electoral participation ever for 100 years in the midterm election because so many people hated Trump. Mm -hmm. And so you see both sides, and you see that in 2020, Trump boosted his vote and the other side boosted its vote. And so in some strange way, just to be a little more provocative, I mean, populism in some sense revives democracy because the populists draw people into politics and the adversaries draw people into politics. And so you see 
in some strange way, it can get out of hand and it can feed polarization, can have negative side effects, but in some way, populism sort of helps to revitalize these stodgy, old, tired, exhausted representative Western democracies. You know, way more people talked about politics since Trump rose than before. And so in a strange way, there is sort of this, you know, we don't like it, and that's exactly why there is a rejuvenating effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, looking at the current world events for a second, in the war pitting Russia against a democratic Ukraine, um, is that causing heartburn for illiberal authoritarian leaning populists around the world who now have to either choose sides or find a way to present themselves as neutral? Either of you. <laughs> I, I think so. And I actually, um, you know, I thought until recently Trump would have a very good chance of getting reelected. But the way I see, I think mainstream Republicans are using this Putin Russia thing to really kind of raise the old um, Republican strength on foreign policy and put Trump in the offsides. Hey, you bet on the wrong horse. You know, you're a friend of Putin and we hit Putin over the head, not only because we don't like Putin, but because but we don't like you. And so I think in the Republican Party, this is allows the non-Trump, the mainstream conservatives to have a way of finally trying to shove that guy aside. Mm -hmm. And you see that I think in many other you know, countries that the right-wing populists have been, they're bet on the wrong horse and they look really bad. How can you be a friend of Putin if Putin does these terrible, awful things? So I guess one thing I would add is that, um, so I agree, um, but one thing I would add is, you know, what Kurt said earlier is that populists are political entrepreneurs in the sense that they're kind of fishing for, uh, for topics um, in political discourse that are underutilized and are usually controversial. And so I have no doubt, although I don't know which of these topics they would be, but I'm, I'm no doubt that there are going to be new populists who are going to be exploiting whatever, you know, controversial issues come out of this sort of foreign policy shock. And one thing that I think has been implicit in this discussion is that we've been talking mostly about populists on the right. Mm -hmm. but they're also populists on the left. Um, and those populists didn't sort of historically tend to be as detrimental for, for democracy as populists on the right, although there are you know the likes of Chavez and so on. Um, but I imagine that there's going to be a little bit more room on the left uh, for populists coming out of this, this type of crisis um, than for those on the right, precisely because many of those populists have bet on the wrong, on the wrong horse um, mm -hmm. in, this, um, in this. Now, is that good? I'm not sure, but, um, mm -hmm. but that's my um, mm -hmm. very broad and probably unsuccessful prediction. <laughs> uh, well, Kurt told me a, a little while ago that he sort of has specialized in Latin America in terms of studying these things. Is there a region you are closest to? I um, study Eastern Europe, although not exclusively, um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but I do, although not um, quite the region that is being, um, you know, under, under particular stress mm -hmm. at the moment, so mostly sort of Southeastern Europe um, and Central Europe. Yeah. So what if, what, can you give us an example of something that you think demonstrates what we've been talking about here? Well, you know, the, the obvious shock coming out of this, other than the security shock um, that the countries are going through, is the, the refugee um, yeah. crisis. Um, and so the refugee crisis, usually what it does is it brings out the, the sort of 
the kind of you know concern about oh they're coming for our jobs or they're going to mm -hmm. you know, overwhelm the welfare state. Um, this time around, it's going to be a little bit different because the profile of people who are who are fleeing um, Ukraine is not quite the same as say uh, people from Syria or from other recent conflicts, and so it's going to be interesting to see the kind of populist entrepreneurs in Eastern Europe, sort of how they're going to seize that because this refugee crisis is very different um, and it's you know it's. I mean, maybe it's controversial to say, but it's more of the, you know, you know, Ukrainians are, in a way, similar to the Czechs or the Poles or the, um, but they're also going to be putting stress um, mm -hmm. on domestic society, and so um, it's it's going to it's going to create a, a, a new set of issues that uh, the populists are going to be um, seizing on. Well, in particular, so, yeah. So that's a quasi experiment, right? Because you you have the economic threat is similar to other. Refugees, but it, you know the cultural and That's ethnic right, thing the is different, and right? And the so figure out mm -hmm. all these cuts. So my um, professor of statistics uh, in graduate school used to say, "Whatever is good for the world is bad for social science, and vice versa." And so I guess this is bad for the world, but good for social science <laughs> in terms of a quasi-experiment <laughs> in real terms. Wow, well, thank you so much, uh, Kurt Weyland, and also Marco Klajniak. Thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate it. And uh, I hope that all of you will stay with us for the next segment of World Canvas when we'll be focusing on the future of democracy. Hello, and welcome back to World Canvas and our topic tonight, corruption, the rise of populism, and the future of democracy. That final phrase, the future of democracy, is what we'll concentrate on in this part of our discussion. Allow me to introduce Maria Popova, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at McGill University. Thank you for traveling here in this strangely snowy day. Uh, and Bill Reisinger, Professor in the Department of Political Science here at the University of Iowa. Thank you for being here, Bill. I also want to remind everybody that uh, Marina and Bill were the organizers of the symposium that will be happening here on the next two days on the campus of the University of Iowa. And uh, it's clear that it's going to be a very, very interesting symposium. And it is open to the public, so if you are interested in learning more, you can go to our website, which is international.uiowa.edu, and you'll find more information there. Maria, I'd like to begin with you, if you don't mind. Throughout my lifetime here in America, I've heard people on all sides of the political spectrum use phrases like, freedom isn't free, and our great experiment in democracy is under threat. It's not much of a stretch to apply those words to what's happening today in Ukraine. The world can see that Russia is waging a merciless war against Ukraine, and this incursion into a sovereign state began many years ago. How do you assess Putin's actions against democratic Ukraine, and how can other democracies best support states that are threatened or attacked by a larger, stronger, non-democratic neighbor? Thanks for this uh, really good question, and, and especially for pointing out that the aggression uh, by Russia against Ukraine really started in 2014 uh, rather than uh, now. Um, a lot of people are, um, are sort of reacting with shock to uh, the full-scale invasion that started on uh, February 24th. But in reality, if we had uh, watched closely, anybody who watched closely the last eight years um, knows that this was not entirely unexpected. Uh, basically, what happened in 2014 uh, was that uh, that's the crucial pivotal moment when uh, Russia decided that it can invade a sovereign uh, neighbor. 
um, as um, motivated by the fact that they didn't like the outcome of the popular uh, mobilization that happened in uh, Ukraine in 2014, they decided they can uh, use this opportunity of uh, destabilization to take part of Ukrainian uh, territory, and they did so. And because the taking and annexation of Crimea wasn't uh, uh, wasn't bloody, people have sort of forgotten over the eight years that this was also interstate aggression and uh, taking uh, sovereign. Uh, territory from uh, from another neighbor, and and now what we saw uh, over the last uh, eight years uh, was Russia's attempt to use uh, the additional uh, leverage, which came from this uh, insurgency that Russia sort of jump started in the eastern part of Ukraine in Donbas, to use this insurgency uh, to to cause basically uh, state collapse of. Uh, of democratically competitive Ukraine. And uh, when it became clearer um, over the last uh, few years that Ukraine was actually not collapsing, in fact, it went through uh, another uh, democratic election. It had one president elected in 2014, another president uh, elected in 2019. Um, on uh, Zelensky was elected on a platform to achieve peace uh, with Russia, to achieve some sort of accommodation. But uh, Russia's expectation to that was, well, uh, we can probably force capitulation because he's coming on this, on this, um, uh, on this uh, promise to achieve peace, but we're gonna push him hard and, and uh, we're go going to achieve our goals. However, when it turned out that Zelensky was not budging on these goals, and uh, in the words of Russian negotiators, he turned out to be just as bad as the previous president, uh, really uh, then it was only a matter of time uh, until uh, Russia invaded. Because fundamentally, this invasion is about uh, Russia's refusal to, uh, um, to accept that Ukraine is a sovereign nation and um, is uh, an independent uh, nation with consolidated civic national identity, which is different and increasingly different from Russia's. So um, there's been a lot of uh, talk in the West about what, uh, what the West has done wrong to sort of maybe precipitate this. And, and probably many of you have heard the argument that NATO expansion caused this. But in reality, if we look at the timing of this escalation, what we see is that in fact, this is much more about, uh, not about the West and what it did and what it didn't do, but about Russia not being able to come to terms with the disintegration of the Soviet Union in 1991 and, um, and the creation of an independent uh, Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So if we imagine a time when this current hot war has ended, do you think that there's any way that the West, uh, I'm thinking of course of you know, NATO countries, just as an example, the U.S. included, uh, when the West and um, Putin can re-engage in any kind of respectful statecraft, assuming that Putin is still in, in power, is there any way to put any of these pieces back together? 
it's it's really difficult. It's really difficult because I think at this point um, it is it should be clear to the West that uh, Putin it has not acted in good faith in uh, any of the diplomacy that preceded this war. But it also should be clear that uh, that the part that is particularly unacceptable and and sort of was pushing uh, Putin towards this uh, course of action was his uh, hostility to uh, democracies on Russia's, uh, in Russia's neighborhood, but also his uh, hostility to liberal democracy in general. I mean, we know that over the last 10 years, uh, Russia intensified uh, efforts and pursued concerted efforts uh, to destabilize not just the democracies in the neighborhood like Ukraine, but also uh, Western European democracies by uh, funding uh, both parties, both on the far right and on the far left, uh, by uh, engaging in, in a lot of disinformation. And, um, and I think that, uh, that kind of strategy from Russia will only continue. So, so I think what this, uh, the way in which this war is sort of a, a watershed moment for democracies in Europe and in the West uh, more broadly is this full realization, something that should have been realized in fact in 2014, but now becomes uh, even clearer uh, that the West needs to protect itself from, uh, from Russian interference, both in security terms and also in terms of uh, political destabilization through disinformation. Um, when we hear news reports that indicate that uh, there's, uh, that people in Russia are not getting the news that we are seeing every day, um, and that many don't even believe that what we see every day on the news happening in Ukraine is actually happening. Um, we can call it um, disinformation, we can call it uh, whatever we like, but the fact is that there is a, a, a large uh, group of people in Russia who believe that Russia is on the right track, doing whatever it is they're doing just now for whatever they believe is being done in Ukraine. How, how do you turn that around when we see news reports of people whose parents live in Russia and don't believe their children when they say, my apartment was just blown away and I've now gone to Poland? I mean, it is very hard to see how this can be. This is, you're right that this is about more than disinformation. I mean, Russian media is controlled and has been highly controlled uh, by, uh, by uh, an increasingly repressive uh, regime over the last 10 years. Uh, one by one, different um, sort of opposition-leaning uh, news outlets have been uh, suppressed. Uh, opposition-leaning newspapers have had to uh, publish with disclaimers on all their articles saying that they're foreign agents as opposed to uh, local uh, media outlets. Um, so, but it's about, um, it's about more than disinformation. It's mm -hmm. about also um, the, the fact that uh, Russia hasn't really gone through um, a period of uh, reckoning and reevaluation sort of of its uh, imperialist and colonial uh, past. 
both as the Russian Empire and as, as the main driving force of the Soviet Union. So, uh, so this war actually, in addition to disinformation playing its role, uh, another uh, part of, uh, of uh, the reason Russians tend to uh, consume what's coming from the regime is that it is in line with a lot of the history that they've studied in the last uh, 30 years and, and, and longer. Uh, the problem was that n none of that changed dramatically in, uh, in the post-Soviet period. So, it, uh, so when, when the government now is telling them that they're reincorporating Ukraine, mm -hmm. which rightfully belongs with Russia, and uh, when the government is telling them that in fact Ukraine has been taken over by Nazis and is being manipulated by the West, uh, and in fact the true Ukraine is a brotherly nation that wants to be in Russia, this uh, for them jives not just with the disinformation that they hear on TV, but it works with their entire uh, worldview that has bu been built uh, by um, by education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let me turn to you, Bill, and bring you into the conversation. I think I'm going to look to you to help um, pull together all the thoughts that have been expressed so far about corruption, populism, um, the threats to democracy that we see around the world. Um, where do we stand here at home in terms of a public understanding of um, threats to democracy, either in our own country or elsewhere? Is this a conversation that is current among the populace in America? Yeah, I, I think it is. Um, I think in a lot of ways the um, sort of resurgence of interest in politics uh, that was mentioned as a phenomenon uh, in recent years in, in the United States uh, is um, contributing to that questioning of democracy, which you know has long in the United States been taken for granted as kind of the bedrock and, and uh, sort of component part of, of what we are as, as a polity. Um, I, I, you know, certainly there's great interest uh, among students uh, that I teach and things. So yeah, I think there's an awareness of that. Um, you know, one of, the, um, one of the things that probably Americans continue to not be as good at as, um, as they should be is, a, is just kind of seeing the international dimensions of things, right? And so uh, certainly uh, Americans are very concerned about democracy in the U.S. To what extent they're aware of the problems democracy faces on a more global scale, um, you know, that I'm less sure of. But, mm -hmm. But certainly, I think this is an, it's an important topic. And uh, you know, events like the symposium we're having here are really useful for teasing out how these things relate and, and seeing implications of different trends that are going on. So in that mm -hmm. sense, I think that's really, really valuable. Mm -hmm. um, if healthy democracies are the goal, what do we have to do to reaffirm uh, the ideals of democracy here in the U.S. in order to, to, to be that, you know, that country that others might aspire to? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, quite a bit. Um, so well, <laughs> one thing I'll say, though, is I, I think among other things that um, have been shaken up, other, other perspectives that have been shaken up by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, is a sense that um, this is uh, purely a domestic matter. Right? So I think what we, we need to now take into account is that um, problems like corruption and populism are not outside forces that um, invade democracies 
that are perfectly healthy. They really, they prey on democratic weaknesses. So you have to fix things that are about how politics works in a given country, in a given nation state. But you can't do that unless you're aware of, of the international dimension of things like corruption and populism, um, but also uh, just the kind of larger global economy and the, the legal systems and the way that uh, you know, the um, institutions of democracy can be evaded uh, by those who know how and those in whose interest, uh, monetary and otherwise, it is to do that. So there's, there's gonna have to be this kind of interesting reckoning of how do we strengthen uh, our domestic institutions, our domestic practices, and outlooks and behaviors uh, while understanding them as part of a, a really a global system. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the current Ukraine-Russia conflict, uh, while a lot of the world has aligned in opposition to the Russian invasion, there are major democracies such as India, Mexico, and Brazil that have chosen to remain neutral or at least avoid taking a firm stance against Russia. Um, what are the motivations and perceptions of these states, do you think, and how can global North countries, uh, democracies, appeal to them more effectively to align themselves with us? So um, I, um, I would love to hear Maria's thoughts on this too, but mm -hmm. I'll, I'll throw out this. Uh, somebody uh, came out with a, um, a study very quickly after the U United Nations vote uh, condemning Russia's invasion, uh, where they showed that the countries that either sided with Russia or were neutral, they abstained on the vote, uh, were those countries uh, with a very high correlation who get most of their military uh, imports from Russia. Right? So they rely on Russia for, them, for their home defense. Uh, so there's that kind of things. In other words, there's uh, sort of a commercial side yeah. to this. And of course, uh, Western democracies will probably want to be thinking about how do we uh, sort of not give Russia and other bad actors in the world uh, the economic leverage they get from being the suppliers of military weaponry, of uh, energy, import, uh, importantly, and other things, right? So there's commercial competition will be part of it. But I also think that it has to come with um, a recommitment to values and uh, making a values first foreign policy uh, that uh, countries can, um, that the citizens of people around the world can really latch on to. So maybe we regain some credibility in the Philippines and things like that. Uh, and you know, that starts with us living up to those ideals, mm -hmm. but um, you know, also enunciating them. And yeah. so I think there's gonna be a certain kind of uh, uh, diplomatic slash commercial uh, political side to things, but also I think the values have to be, be in as well. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you wanna respond sure. to that too? Sure, I, I, um, I agree that the, the economic dimension is a big part of it. I think uh, part of the reason we saw some uh, democracies in the global south actually uh, refrain from uh, from criticizing Russia very strongly, I think has to do with an effective rhetorical strategy by, uh, by Russia to pin this invasion on NATO expansion. Mm -hmm. So it allows to then say, uh, to have this uh, this argument really travels very well in the global south because it it uh, immediately links to anti-westernism to all the mistakes that the US has 
indeed made over the years uh, in the global south. And, um, and uh, to, to, to those audiences, uh, the argument that you know, uh, NATO pushed Russia too far and Russia had to do something to respond uh, really uh, resonates. Um, I saw in the, in the New York Times recently uh, an article that, that showed some data that uh, the top accounts on Twitter uh, that have I stand with Putin as, um, uh, in, in their uh, bios are, uh, come from, uh, from India. So, um, so it's actually a, a really interesting, and the reason for that is the NATO expansion argument, which is very much, in fact, if, if we trace the, the development um, of the Russia-Ukraine relationship, very much a red herring, but uh, if you don't know these details, it resonates really well. And, and that is why. Why would, why would India have any particular interest in NATO? It's, it's not so much an interest in NATO, but uh, a sense that the, uh, that the U.S. has interfered a mm -hmm. lot mm -hmm. in, uh, in the world and in places where it shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. And NATO expansion was one example yeah. that happened to push Russia. Sure, sure, sure. So for both of you, you know, I can certainly remember a time just a few years ago when globalization seemed to offer all kinds of wonderful positive opportunities to, on the one hand, there might be an increase in income levels in countries where people made very little money every day. There'd be more opportunities to share things globally that were made locally and so on and so forth. We all know all the arguments. Now we see ourselves having gone through this COVID issue and supply chain problems and so on. Um, the, the problems that will result from whatever happens in the settlement of the Ukraine-Russia issue, uh, there will be problems with food distribution and so on. Is globalization uh, something that is being rethought at every level now? Or should it be? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think the globalization has had sort of this dual impact, right? So uh, providing new kinds of goods and lowering prices and other things, yet also having uh, this increase in inequality and, and a variety of other uh, bad effects. Uh, also, uh, as Professor Whalen mentioned in the previous segment, um, this uh, rise in many ways of uh, technocratic governance that's removed from people uh, and their, their own ability to act politically mm -hmm. and have some impact on things that matter to them, right? So kind of lifting politics up farther away from people. Uh, so I think uh, the the rethinking globalization has certainly got to be on the agenda, and the pandemic plus the Russian invasion have certainly uh, highlighted that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems that, um, that the war uh, uh, in Ukraine will likely trigger some regionalization um, as, a, as a sort of counter uh, trend to globalization uh, because within Europe uh, it is likely uh, that uh, there will be sort of a new type of uh, Iron Curtain dividing now Russia from the rest of Europe and uh, whatever countries 
managed to be on the European side as opposed to on the, uh, on the Russian side in this. And this will, of course, be, uh, I mean, some of the Eastern European countries are, are talking about closing their borders to Russia fully, uh, not allowing any trade anymore, anything to pass. Mm -hmm. um, trains between Russia and Finland have stopped uh, yeah. going because, uh, because of this crisis. So, um, so and, and within Russia itself, there is talk about reorienting and sort of uh, pivoting away from the West and Europe and towards um, Asia uh, because sort of the, the idea uh, floating now in Russia that basically uh, the US and Europe um, are now our enemies and we have to look for friends mm -hmm. elsewhere. <laughs> so we need to pivot too. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think the result of that will be uh, regional blocks mm -hmm. uh, that are deepening uh, relationships within, uh, within those regions and mm -hmm. less emphasis on globalization. Mm -hmm. In fact, deglobalization will mm -hmm. probably be one of the effects. And we haven't talked about China yet, but China is in an interesting position here uh, in relation to Russia and also to its trade partners in other parts of the world. Um, any, any thoughts on what will happen here in terms of, of public statements and public alignments between China and Russia's position or, or uh, China and the West? Well, it, it seems that China would like to uh, have it both ways to a certain extent and cast themselves as you know, against um, uh, invasions, against interference in, in neighboring countries and those kind mm -hmm. of things. On the other hand, uh, Russia and China have moved very close, and China in many practical ways is uh, willing to help Russia uh, to counter the sanctions or to you know, ease their, the economic pain of the sanctions. And uh, China and Russia are much more simpatico on their criticism of the uh, global liberal order and things. There was that statement at the beginning of the uh, Beijing Olympics where the t two of them basically said, we share this anti-Western perspective on things. So uh, I expect uh, they will uh, tighten even further the close ties that they've had. And you know what that means for Russia, it seems to me, is they'll become the junior satellite to China as, you know, mm -hmm. as China's influence grows in, in the coming decades. Yeah. yeah. I very much agree with that. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's it. Mm -hmm. Well, then, just for one final question for both of you, um, do you have an optimistic feeling about the future of democracy for these next years, the week, uh, the next 20 years, 30 years in, in world order? Maybe I can quickly throw out um, statistics I brought that are pessimistic about the <laughs> past. And we all think about, you know, how do we overcome these things? Um, first step of which will be to uh, come attend our symposium panels where you hear, <laughs> hear from really great experts on, on all the subtleties. But uh, over the last 10 years, and I, I'm going to use, uh, these are numbers from uh, one of the agencies that uh, rates democracy around the world, the Varieties of Democracy Project, and they just came out with um, their most recent estimates. And they, they're, what they're trying to capture is liberal democracy, so not just elections, but also the protection of rights and, and, and things. And uh, so according to their liberal democracy index, the global average over the last 10 years is down 6%, uh, which, is, which is a substantial decline uh, for, uh, for a 10-year period. Uh, and, and that's really 
that's mirrored all over the world. That's, so it's not just concentrated in one part of the world. It's down 7% in the Americas, down 7.4% in Asia, 4.8% in Europe, 4.6% in Sub-Saharan Africa, and 18% in the Middle East, North Africa. So really, in any world region you care to look at, democracy is suffering. Um, and one thing they say um, is that the level of democracy enjoyed by the average global citizen in 2021 is down to 1989 levels, so before the end of the Soviet Union. Um, mm. The proportion of the world's citizens living under authoritarianism has risen over the last decade from 49% to 70%, so just in, yeah. in 10 years. So um, there really is a big challenge to democracy worldwide. Some of it is uh, democracies collapsing into authoritarian, but some of it is just democracies functioning less well, becoming less democratic, having lower quality. And some of it, as in Russia uh, over the last couple of years, are authoritarian regimes becoming more repressive, even getting further away from liberal democratic goals. So the quality of life for people politically is declining all around the world. And you know, how do you change that? As I said, I think it's going to take hard work to change politics within countries, to deal with um, populist leaders who may have the ability to you know, get rid of uh, or to sort of undermine democracy, but also um, it has to be with some international cooperation and really rethinking mm -hmm. of things like globalization uh, and the international finance system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As a note of optimism, I'll say that the, the uh, war in Ukraine has had a very unifying effect on the European Union and the democracies in Western and Eastern Europe are uh, in some ways more united than ever. And we've seen some, uh, some uh, optimistic signs that, that uh, there will be, that, that this will, be, uh, will end the, the era of Euroscepticism and inject some European solidarity and enthusiasm. Uh, the Ukrainians have shown that they're fighting for uh, European values. Uh, Europe has sort of come together to try to support them. There is some optimism mm -hmm. uh, there. Mm -hmm. Well, let's land on an optimistic note. I think that sounds good. And I, I want to say thank you so much, Bill Reisinger and Maria Popova, for joining us for this final segment. And thanks to all of you, uh, our earlier participants, and also those of you here in the room and those watching online. Uh, this was the final World Canvas for this season, but we hope we'll see you again in the fall. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, they're all available on the Public Radio Exchange, iTunes, YouTube, and the International Programs website. So for International Programs, at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. Please thank our guests. <laughs>